Welcome to this week's episode of the North Bible Church Podcast. Now, let's join our pastor as we open God's Word together. Well, good morning, everybody. Great to see you all here. Thanks for joining us online. I know many of us are out on vacation, so it's great that we have the online streaming options so that you can join us live being here with us this morning. Uh, welcome in out of the heat. Is it 110 degrees outside yet today? No? I got, I got to tell you, <laughs> this is pretty funny. Maybe it's funny, maybe it's not. Uh, about a week ago, I was just I was talking about the weather with like, I don't know, I was with anybody and everybody. Because uh, we got through June and I was talking about this with a bunch of different people. I don't know, I had three or four different conversations about the weather. And I'm like, man, we got through June without that week of like 110 degree temperatures. Isn't that great? And then, sure enough, we first, like, second week of July or whatever, we hit the week of 110 degree temperatures. So, like, from my, from my mouth to God's ears, uh, you can direct all the angst you want at me. I'm sure it's my fault that we're having this week of 110 degrees plus because it's here. It's arrived. Summer in Phoenix is finally here. And so I hope you're enjoying that. Um, but as we get started here uh, this morning, we are continuing into our series that we've been going through uh, throughout this summer uh, on the parables of Jesus. And as we begin this morning, I want to just ask you a simple question. It's really a simple question. It's not a trick question. You're not going to get graded on how you answer this, but uh, how would you answer this question? Do you believe that people deserve second chances? Yeah, yeah, I think most of you are nodding along. I would expect that here on a Sunday morning with a bunch of Christian people, right, knowing that, that the core Christianity is God's forgiveness and his grace towards us. How about this? How about a third or a fourth, or a fifth, or a sixth chance? Do you believe people deserve that? That question gets a little hairier. It gets a little more difficult to answer, especially if those offenses or those hurts are things that you're having to forgive in your life. Third, fourth, fifth, a sixth time. We're going to be talking this morning about one of the best known, one of the best, best loved and well-known parables that Jesus teaches in, in the Gospels this morning, the parable that is often known as the parable of the prodigal son. And as we do, we're going to be talking about what God's perspective is on forgiveness. And so as we look at this, at this parable, I think one of the things that I love about it, it's one of my favorites by far, I think it's a lot of people's favorites, but it is one of those that, that just highlights the beauty and the wisdom of Jesus as a storyteller. Uh, even non-biblical scholars recognize that Jesus' ability to tell stories, especially a story like this one, uh, kind of displays some of the greatest stories that have ever been written down in human literature. And, of course, I'm a, probably a little bit biased when I say this, but I believe that Jesus is the greatest storyteller who ever lived. And we're going to see that come to the surface here in this parable. Now, this parable, one of the things that makes it so great is that it has a lot of layers to it. There's a lot of layers of meaning to it. We actually encounter three different scenes. It's the longest parable that's recorded in the Gospels that Jesus tells. There's multiple characters that are involved. And in each one of these scenes and how the characters interact, there are actually multiple lessons that we can learn from this depending on where we're at in our relationship with God. But also, at the same time, it's also really clear as far as the clarity in the midst of the complexity and the way that Jesus puts this together and communicates it is astounding as well. Because you get to the end of this, and as we're going to see, this will hit us no matter where we're at in a very clear and obvious way. And even though it's so complex and there's all these layers of meaning at the same time, when we get to the end of this, it's just like obvious in a lot of ways. Wow, this is amazing. And so, uh, this is one of my favorites. I'm so excited to get into this. When we started this series, I had this one in mind. I'm like, I can't wait till we get to that one because it's my, one of my favorite to teach. And so uh, with all that being said, let's dive into it this morning. I think one of the things that we want to 
Uh, one of the things that makes this parable so um, accessible and so powerful is understanding the setting that Jesus is in when he tells this parable. Now, we've said this throughout this series, but in a lot of cases, when Jesus is teaching the parables, the gospel writers are reminding us of the setting that he is teaching these things in. So he's reminding us of the audience that he's speaking to most notably. Because in a lot of cases, what Jesus is doing is he's actually inviting the audience that he's speaking to to be a part of the parable. He tells the parable with, with them in mind and is able to kind of, in, in that way, invite them into understanding themselves as a part of the parable, whether that's a character, as we're going to see here today, or whether it's an image or a metaphor or whatever it may be. And so it makes sense that we should understand a little bit about the original setting. That is particularly important for this parable itself. And we find this parable in Luke chapter 15. Now, we were in Luke chapter 15 a few weeks ago. It was Pastor West took us through two parables, the parable of the lost sheep and the parable of the lost coin. And one thing we need to know about that is that those two parables actually go together with this one that we're going to talk about today, the one that's known as the parable of the prodigal son. They were actually told all three together. Jesus told them back to back to back in the same setting at the same time to the same audience. And so Wes did a great job of setting up that for us a few weeks ago, but it has been a few weeks. And so I want to take us through that setting again and remind us of what's going on when Jesus tells this parable. And Luke gives us the setting in his own words. In Luke chapter 15, verses 1 and 2, he tells us this is the scene that Jesus is in at the time. He says, Now the tax collectors and sinners were all drawing near to hear Jesus. And the Pharisees and the scribes grumbled, saying, This man receives sinners and eats with them. Now, of course, the gospel writers like Luke recognize that these settings were essential to the meaning of the parables. That's one of the reasons why Luke is giving us this thing. But notice he doesn't give us every detail of what's going on. He highlights two groups in particular, and, he, and then he highlights how those groups are responding to Jesus in the moment. That's what Luke wants us to know. So one group is the tax collectors and the sinners, and the other groups he identifies as the Pharisees and the scribes. And he says it's the tax collectors and the sinners who are the ones who are drawing near to Jesus. They're the ones who are having a meal with Jesus. They're the ones who Jesus receives as, as they're there, kind of associated and connected with him. And then we've got the Pharisees and the scribes. And the Pharisees and the scribes have a very different reaction to Jesus and what's going on there. They're repelled by what Jesus is doing. That's what Luke wants us to know. Now, the question, though, is why were the Pharisees, these Jewish religious leaders, so appalled at what Jesus was doing and the scene that was in front of them. Well, beyond the fact that Pharisees just tended to be grumpy in general, right? We see that over and over again. They had a specific reason for feeling grumpy about what was going on in this scene. And why is that? Well, let's start with tax collectors. Two groups of people that are mentioned together, tax collectors and sinners. Tax collectors at the time worked for the Roman government. And it was their job, literally, to go from house to house, from family to family, from business to business, and collect taxes on behalf of the Roman government. So think about, uh, think about um, how much you, uh, you despise that line on your paycheck that says FICA. You know what I'm saying? And we all despise that line. That says, imagine if FICA came to life and became a person and knock on your door every month and demand a certain amount of money on behalf of the government. Not a very popular position, not a very popular job. And so tax collectors weren't liked for that reason. But there are also a couple of other reasons why they were particularly despised. First of all, tax collectors made the majority of their money based upon how much they could collect above what the normal tax rate was. 
So let's say that they were supposed to collect $100 from the Jones house. Whatever they could collect above $100 was actually money that they put in their own pockets. So there was negotiation that would go on. There was lying that would go on. There was trickery that would go on from house to house. And tax collectors would do that for the purpose of lining their own pockets. So they were thieves. They were liars. They would steal. Those kinds of things. Not only that, but tax collectors worked for the Roman government. And what Rome would do is typically take indigenous people in a given area and make those people tax collectors who would then collect from their neighbors and in their communities. And in this case, of course, these tax collectors were Jewish. Now, there were two ways, primarily, that the Romans oppressed and kept their thumb over the Jewish people that they were ruling over at the time. One was by military might, and the other was by economic oppression and exploitation. And one of the main agents of that economic exploitation was a tax collector. And so a tax collector was looked at as a thief, as a liar, but also somebody who was a traitor to Israel and also somebody who was an agent of oppression. So you can imagine that tax collectors were not very popular people. In fact, they were considered to be both social and religious outcasts in this setting. And speaking of social and religious outcasts, you've got this second group that are just mentioned as sinners. <laughs> Imagine just being part of that group, right? You're just a sinner, right? That's a, they're, they're being described as just kind of, these are the people who are the ones that are so far gone that they're not even a part of, they're not even worth acknowledging by name or by group other than the fact that they're just sinners. Now the sinners were the people who had lived such a lifestyle that they were um, outside of the community of Israel. So they were people who were not allowed into worship, for the most part. They were people who had been thrown out of the Jewish community, and in many cases had he probably even been disowned by their own families. So they were social and religious outcasts as well. Now, we're not told specifically what, what the sins were involved in this, but you can imagine some of the, those groups of folks. It would have been people like prostitutes. would have been people who were... Uh, outwardly living a secular lifestyle. It would have been people who were maybe, maybe gay people. It would have been people who were uh, people who might have been working for the Roman government but weren't necessarily tax collectors. They were seen as traitors. It would have been willing apostates, people who just decided, I don't want to be a part of the Jewish community and go to worship at the temple. All right? So you've got these two groups of people. And whoever they might be specifically, the sinners along with the tax collectors, what they have in common is that they are both people who saw themselves and whom other people saw as well as social and religious outcasts. And that's certainly how the Pharisees saw them. That's how most Jewish people saw them. I mean, think about the disciples who were sitting there. I think the disciples probably shared a little bit of the Pharisees' uh, perspective on who these people were. These are the people we've been told all our lives not to associate with. These are the people we've been told all our lives that are the ones who God has, God's wants nothing to do with these people. And they probably believe that of themselves. And yet Jesus comes along and there's something that they see and they hear and what Jesus is saying and what he's teaching and his ministry that draws them to him. And so they're sitting there having a meal with Jesus. Jesus, the religious teacher who was the one claiming to be the Messiah, he was the one eating with them and receiving them associating himself with them. And what's important to notice at the beginning here is the fact that those who were the religious and social outcasts, again, were the ones who were attracted to Jesus. And those who were the ones who were the religious leaders, the religious elite at the time, the Pharisees were the ones who were repelled by Jesus. It's important to note. We're going to talk a little bit more about that later. But for now, let's just imagine that scene for a moment. It's full of tension. 
On the one hand, with the tax collectors and the sinners, it's full of the tension of the hope of maybe, maybe there's still hope for us to be reconciled to God. If this is truly God's Messiah and he's receiving us, maybe there's an opportunity for us to come back to God. There's tension on the other side with the religious gatekeepers. The tension on that side was a little bit different. It was more the tension of a powder keg, ready to erupt at anything and everything that Jesus was doing that violated their standard for how a Messiah or a religious teacher was supposed to act. And it's into that powder keg that Jesus lights the match of these three parables. The parable of the lost sheep, and in that scene, in that parable, there's a shepherd who leaves the 99 sheep behind to chase after the one sheep that has been lost so that he can find him. The parable of the lost coin, where there's a woman who has 10 coins and she loses one of her coins and she tears her house apart looking for that one coin until she finds it. And then finally, the parable that is known that Jesus calls the parable of the two sons. And that's where we start here in Luke chapter 15, verse 11 through 16. It's important to remember what we're going to see here is Jesus talk about two sons. Each one of those sons represents one of these groups that Luke has described for us in Luke 15. The younger son is going to represent the tax collectors and the sinners, and the older son that's referred to represents the Pharisees and the scribes, okay? So we need to know that to make sense of what uh, the parable is saying to us. And with that being said, we're going to look at this uh, parable in three different scenes. It breaks down into three different scenes, and we'll talk about each scene after we, uh, after we read through it, okay? So Luke chapter 15, first scene starts in verse 11. And Jesus said, There was a man who had two sons, and the younger of them said to his father, Father, give me the share of property that is coming to me. And he divided his property between them. And not many days later, the younger son gathered all that he had and took a journey into a far country, and there he squandered his property in reckless living. And when he had spent everything, a severe famine arose in that country, and he began to be in need. So he went and hired himself out to one of the citizens of that country, who sent him into the fields to feed pigs. And he was longing to be fed with the pods that the pigs ate, and no one gave him anything. Now earlier, of course, I said that this parable is often known as the parable of the prodigal son. And I said that just because it's the one that's most recognizable. I don't think, though, that that's the best title for this parable, for at least a couple of reasons. First of all, because Jesus doesn't call it that. He actually calls it a story about two sons and a father. Secondly, the meaning of this is not just focused on the prodigal son, which would be the younger son, but it's focused on both sons and their relationship to their father. And so because of that, we're just going to call it, we're going to call it today instead the parable of the two sons when we refer to it, okay? And so with that in mind, with that being said, the first thing seen focuses on the younger of the two sons. Again, this is the son who represents in the story the tax collector and the sinner. Anyone, and anyone else who, by the way, has wandered away from God in a similar kind of lifestyle of rebellion. But in this scene, the younger brother goes to his father, who in this case represents God, and the younger son asks his father for his inheritance, essentially. Now, the land and the inheritance was broken up, in this case, among three people, the father and his two sons. So each of them had a third of the land that they were living on. Now, this kind of brushes over it because they're assuming that, you know, Jesus is assuming that those who are listening at the time would understand the historical context. We need to dig into the historical context to really make sense of the request because the request just goes quickly. Like the, the son says, hey, father, give me my inheritance. The father gives it to him. But what's going on here is really, really significant 
The younger son and this request, this demand that he's making of his father is deeply disrespectful and jarring. It would have been shocking for him to make such a request. Because in order for this to happen, the father would have to sell a third of the land that he was living on, likely land that was generational land. So in other words, this land was designed to be passed down from generation to generation, had probably been in the family for uh, several generations at this point where they had cultivated and raised families and their ancestors had been on it, and they're now at this place where they've got this land and they're going along with a father and two sons. And the son comes along and he says, Give me my inheritance. Well, it wasn't as simple as the father just kind of emptying out a 401k account. He had to actually sell a third of the family's generational land and liquidate that so that he could give then the funds to the son so that he could have his inheritance. Now, here's a couple of things about that. The inheritance wasn't normally requested in this way while the father was still alive. And in this case, it was probably actually just designed to be passed down from generation to generation. And so that's why in, in verse 12, right, there's a Greek word that's translated property. You see that word there in verse 12? What's weird about that, or what's kind of fascinating about that, is that the Greek word that is translated from the original language into English is the word bios. It's not the typical word that's used for property in most cases. It's actually the word that's translated into life in most cases. Right, we know the word bios. We have that in our English vocabulary. Biology, the study of life biography, right, a life story, that kind of thing. Well, bios is actually the word that's used here, and so the father has to break up his life. He's giving a third of his life, a third of the family's livelihood when this son requests what he requests. It was deeply jarring. It would have cost him a lot, and it was hugely disrespectful. What the son is essentially saying is, I want nothing more to do with this family. This family is dead to me, and by the way, father, you are dead to me as well. Give me my inheritance so I can leave. Now, in this kind of a situation, it's deeply disrespectful. We can recognize that in our culture. But in that culture, it was unheard of for someone to do something like this. The son is lucky that his father isn't throwing him out of the property physically with blows at this point. Instead, in what would have been an equally shocking moment to the son requesting the inheritance in the first place, the father just complies with his son's request. Even though he doesn't have to, the father sells a third of the generational land and gives the money to his son, no questions asked. Now, why would he do that? Well, because he loves his son. Tim Keller, who's written a fantastic book on this parable, says this about the outrageous demand that the son makes along with the father's shocking response. He says, the younger brother then is asking his father to tear his life apart. And the father does so for the love of his son. Now, most of Jesus' listeners would have never seen a Middle Eastern patriarch respond like this. The father patiently endures a tremendous loss of honor as well as the pain of rejected love. But this father maintains his affection for his son and bears the agony. So what does the son do with all of this newfound wealth, with this love that his father has shown him? He goes out and spends it right away as soon as he can on what Jesus calls reckless living. Later on, we're going to find out it has to do with like kind of prostitutes and all the rest, right? And it's not long, shockingly enough, that he runs completely out of money living that kind of lifestyle. And not only that, but a famine hits the area that he's living in at that time as well, to such a degree that the only thing that he can do to survive is the most meaning, meaning, menial, uh, humbling task that's available, which is feeding the pigs. 
And even as he's feeding the pigs, he's looking at the pods that he's feeding the pigs and longing to just have the pods, the pig food that he is feeding to the pigs. That's how far, things, how far down things have gone. That's how bad it's gotten. This is what we would call rock bottom. And it's when he hits that, the second scene kicks in. That's where the second scene picks up in verse 17. But when he came to himself, he said, How many of my father's hired servants have more than enough bread? But I perish here with hunger. I will arise and go to my father, and I'll say to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Treat me as one of your hired servants. And he arose and came to his father. But while he was standing still a long way off, his father saw him and felt compassion and ran and embraced him and kissed him. And the, son said to, and the son said to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. But the father said to his servants, Bring quickly the best robe and put it on him and put a ring on his hand and shoes on his feet and bring the fattened calf and kill it and let us eat and celebrate. For my son was dead and now he is alive again. He was lost and he's found. And they began to celebrate. You know, of all the things that, of shocking things so far that have taken place in this parable, this is the most shocking piece of the entire story. Nothing compares to what happens in this scene, and uh, let me explain why. When this scene starts, things are so bad for the son, and he's so desperate and humbled that he decides to go back to his father and just beg to be a hired hand on the farm. He knows he's given up his right to be a son. He knows he's given up a right to live in his father's house, to have the inheritance, all those kinds of things. So he devises a plan. He thinks to himself, at least I can go be a hired hand on my father's farm, which meant that he would live off the land and would just be basically like a contracted worker. And maybe my father will pay me better so that I can at least eat and survive. That's his only expectation. But he knows that even for his father to do that, he would have to show him a tremendous amount of mercy. So he works up this speech this apology that, of course, under the Jewish law at that time was necessary. You had to, if you did something like this to a father or a family member, you had to apologize both to God first and apologize to the person you'd offended. And so he's got all that worked out. I'm going to apologize to God, and then I'm going to apologize to my father, and I've got this whole thing worked out. And you can imagine as he makes the long journey, this walk of shame all the way back to his father's house, He's imagining how he's going to say it, how his father might react. Is my father just going to throw me off violently out of the land? Is my father just going to sit there with his arms closed and tapping his foot, waiting for me to grovel at his feet and to beg him for forgiveness? How is my father going to respond? How is he going to take this? And before he can even see his father, his father sees him first. And you can imagine that his father is probably almost at some point, almost every day probably at some point during the day, ever since his son has left, looks towards the horizon thinking, today might be the day when my son returns home. And he finally does. And he sees him, and he runs as fast as he can to embrace his son. Now, here's something to consider. I think this has been brought up by scholars, but the, the father at that time was probably wearing a long robe. And so in order for him to run, I don't know if you've ever tried to run in a long robe before, but it never quite goes well, and it looks ridiculous if you're going to try to do it, right? If you don't believe me, go put the longest robe you can find on at home, and then go run around as fast as you can in your backyard. Put it on video and send it to us. I just want to, want to see that. But if you can imagine, if you ever tried to do that, right, he would have to pick up his robes and run as fast as he can. And no matter how well you run, that does not look good. 
And for a man of his stature, for a man of his age, it was completely, would have been ridiculous. It would have looked silly. It would have looked, in a lot of ways, completely chaotic and reckless. And the servants are watching this, and his neighbors are watching this. But look, he doesn't care. The only thing he cares about is my son was lost, and he's come home. And equally with the emotion that he shows, wouldn't have been something that most fathers during that time show, but he shows every emotion that he can. He slobbers his son with kisses. He embraces him and hugs him. And then he puts the robe on him. The best robe, which would have been a robe from the father's own wardrobe. It would have been one of his, which represents the father's glory covering his, his son's shame covering his son's nakedness, the ripped clothing, the dirtiness that he had. He gives him the finest robe he can find and clothes him in that. And then he gives him shoes on his feet and he puts a ring on his finger. This was probably a family signet ring that would have represented the fact that the son is back in the family and his inheritance is back with him as well. And the son has to be shocked. And you can tell he's shocked because the only way he knows how to react is just by spurting out the kind of rehearsed speech that he had already rehearsed. Father, I'm sorry. I've, I've, and and the, the father cuts him off before he can finish. And he says, kill the fattened calf. Bring out the best of the best. Let all the neighbors know my son has come home and we're going to throw a feast for him. It's an amazing scene. And it's the, you know, and essentially the father is saying to his son, look, I don't need you to grovel at my feet. You don't need to earn your way back into this family and try to pay off your debt. All that matters is that you have come home. And I'm going to receive you and take you back, whatever it may cost me to do so. My son is back. He was lost, but now he's found. Now, we still have one more scene in this parable to go, but consider for a moment what Jesus has just said to all of those who are listening to him, both groups who are there, tax collectors and sinners, the Pharisees and the scribes, both the religious outcasts and the religious elites. And as we've seen the Father's reaction, who represents God in this story, God is like that Father who welcomes anyone back to him. It doesn't matter what you have done. It doesn't matter where you, how far you have wandered. It doesn't matter if you've been angry with God or denied God or wished God dead like this son did his father. It doesn't matter what evils you've done or who you've done them with. God's love and grace is for, and his forgiveness is available to anyone who would receive it. And on top of that, God won't make you grovel at, your, at his feet and beg for his forgiveness. He won't make you earn your way back into relationship with him. Like the father in the story, he will run to you and embrace you and cover your shame and nakedness and sin with his glory and honor and welcome you into the family. That message was good news, especially for those tax collectors and sinners who thought, I have no way back to God. There is no possible way, no matter what I do, that I could earn my way back into God's favor. No wonder they were attracted to Jesus. This was good news that they had never heard before. Now, if the parable ended there, it would have been amazing in and of itself. But there's one more scene to come, and it's this scene that really completes the story. So let's take a look. Verse 25 is the third scene. Now his older son was in the field, and as he came and drew near to the house, he heard music and dancing. And he called one of the servants and asked what, the, and asked what these things meant. And he said to him, Your brother has come, 
And your father has killed the fattened calf because he has received him back safe and sound. But he was angry and refused to go in. And his father came out and entreated him. But he answered his father, look, these many years I have served you. I've never disobeyed your command, and yet you never even gave me so much as a young goat that I might celebrate with my friends. But when the son of yours came, who has devoured your property with prostitutes, you killed the, cat and the fattened calf for him. And he said to him, son, you are always with me, and all that is mine is yours. It was fitting to celebrate and be glad. For this, your brother was dead and is alive. He was lost and is found. Now, in the final scene of the parable, the older brother reemerges into the story. And we're told that he was out in the fields, and he arrives back at his father's house, and he's some distance away from the house, and he can hear music and the sound of the feast that is going on, the feast that the father has thrown for the younger son. And so he grabs one of the servants. He's like, what's going on? Why is there so much commotion? What's the party all about? That kind of thing. And the servant says, well, your brother has come home. And look, I know as we look at this reaction from the older son, there's a lot of immaturity. There's a lot of self-righteousness in this. There's a lot of anger. But I think in some ways, it's understandable why he reacts the way he reacts. Think about it for a minute. He's been out working in the field. He's been keeping the farm going. He's been the one that has been driving and working everything to go forward since his younger brother took off with all the money from the other piece of the property. He's been the one doing all the hard work to keep the family fed and taken care of. And now that he's the only son left, he's been doing twice the amount of work that he was doing when the younger son was there. And not only that, but one thing that he recognizes when he comes back, that the father has thrown a party and he's welcomed the son back into the family, is that now that younger son gets a third, of the inherit, a third of the land back as an inheritance, which is a smaller chunk now than what it was before he left the first time. And so it now eats into the older brother's portion. All of this is in mind as he's reacting. And he's reacting in this way where he's thinking to himself, this is not right, this is not fair. Here I am, dirty and tired after being out in the fields for days and weeks. Come back to this, my father should be throwing me the party. And he's expecting maybe his father to be waiting there to say, hey, great job. You're really doing such a wonderful job in the fields and keeping this farm going. And instead what he arrives to is his father throwing a party for the guy who spent all the money on prostitutes. Now, in all of this, I think we can at least understand where the older brother is coming from if we can't justify his reaction. But he's asking, where is the justice? And that's exactly his response here. He's furious at this perceived lack of justice. And so from his perspective, he's not getting what he deserves. Instead, his younger brother is getting what the older brother deserves. And if the father should be throwing a feast for anyone, it should be for him. And so what he does is he reacts by standing outside of the party in a very public setting this would have been obvious to anybody who was attending the party that this was a protest, essentially. What the, older brother, what the older son is saying is, Father, I don't agree with what you're doing, and I don't agree with the fact that my younger brother is back here, so I'm not going to celebrate a thing. I don't care if he was lost and now he's found. There is no justice in what you're doing. You were wrong to do what you're doing. But the father recognizes this, and just as he did with his younger son, the father shows his older son grace as well. He runs out to the younger son, 
and he goes out of the party as the party's host, which would have been a disgraceful thing, goes out of the party to go meet his older son and to reason with him. This time he's not welcoming him back from being in a foreign land and you know, doing all the things that the younger son did, but he's reasoning with him with grace. Son, look, you have always been with me. Son, look, everything that I have is yours. And so as he finishes, he extends a gracious invitation to respond and to come in to the feast. Now, here's one of the things that's remarkable about this parable. It just ends right there. It ends kind of open-ended. We don't know whether or not the older son took the invitation, whether he responded, whether he decided, you know what, Father, you're right. I'm sorry. I'm so glad my younger brother is home. Let's go party, right? You don't know whether he accepts that invitation or not. And there's a reason for that. Jesus deliberately leaves it open-ended because this parable is directed towards the Pharisees, the older brothers who are hearing this parable. And he's leaving it open-ended because it's an invitation to them to come into the kingdom. See yourself in this, and it's Jesus, just like the Father offers this gracious response to the older brother, Jesus is offering the exact same gracious invitation to the Pharisees who are standing there by telling them this parable. And it's left open-ended. And so as Jesus finishes the parable, he makes the rather shocking assessment of the two groups who are listening. And what happens by the end is that the actual group who finds themselves in the party, in the kingdom, so to speak, are the ones who are the tax collectors and the sinners. By the end of the parable, the one who is left outside are the Pharisee types, the older son types, the scribes, and the religious leaders. And why is that? Well, it's not because God only loves and accepts tax collectors and sinners because they're tax collectors and sinners. It's because of the love of God that goes out to them. It's because of the salvation of Jesus that's given to them that they've received. Now, however, the older brother doesn't recognize his need for repentance and forgiveness and reconciliation, which leaves him outside of the party. In his mind, he's perfectly justified to be feeling the way that he is. And yet his sin is just as bad, keeps him out of the kingdom, just as much as the sin of the younger brother does. Another title for this parable is often the parable of the, law of the two lost sons. Because by the time you get to the end of this parable, what you realize is that the two sons that Jesus describes at the beginning are both lost in the sense that they're both estranged from their father. They're both people who are, they're both sons who are disconnected from their father and they're both sons who don't actually want to be with their father. Instead, they just want what their father can give them. And there are two ways then in this parable that are presented as being lost. There's the irreligious way and the religious way of being lost. The irreligious way of being lost is pretty obvious, right? It's the way of license and the way of independence. It's the one who says, I'm going to do things my own way. I don't care what God says. I don't want any authority over my life because it's all about my rights, my freedom, me to be able to do whatever I want, my pleasure, my feelings, my independence. And I'm not bound by any authority or any God to tell me what I should or shouldn't do. In most cases, it's really obvious because people like this, the younger brother types, are saying, I don't, I don't even believe in a God. And I don't care what God has to say about my life anyway. The religious way of being lost is a little bit more difficult to diagnose because it's the way of self-righteousness and legalism. 
It's the way that is represented by the older brother, where he's so indignant with his father that he said, look, I have never disobeyed you. Look at how righteous I am. Look at how good I am. You should give me what I deserve and what I've earned. And look, in the end, what happens is that you realize that although the behaviors of the younger son and the older son are very different, their heart motivations are very much the same. They just want what their father can give them rather than wanting their father themselves. They just want it in different ways. They both want the inheritance. One just does it by asking for it so he can go spend it on whatever he wants. The other one is trying to earn it by the good deeds and the righteousness that he's showing towards his father. And by the end of this, I think what we realize is that although both ways are being lost and estranged from the father, I think what this parable highlights is that it's the second way that is the most deceptive. The older brother, self-righteousness. Because it's hard to see that in ourselves. It's difficult to see that. In fact, it's difficult for other people to see that in our lives as well. Because on the surface, it looks like everything's great. I'm doing all the Christian religious things that I'm supposed to be doing. Look at all of my good works that I'm displaying in my life. And in many cases, other people will look at those who are older, brother, or older sons and say, wow, I wish I could be like that guy. Look how much he's got it together. Look how faithful he is towards God. And of course, when the older brother hears that, it puffs him up with pride, and it cements him even further in self-righteousness. Because see, the grace of God humbles us, while the pride of self-righteousness just continues to puff us up. And that's why it's so difficult to see this in ourselves. So how do we know whether or not we have an older brother perspective? I want to close with a few thoughts that we see here from the older brother. You know, a few weeks ago, uh, you may remember that Wes played a little game with us called, uh, and it was the Jeff Foxworthy, you could be a redneck if, that kind of thing, right? Remember that? That was a fun game, right? Because he did like, you could be a Pharisee if, and there was probably 150 different things that he listed on there. It was a pretty comprehensive list, pretty impressive. Hopefully you had fun with that. It was kind of painful to go through personally, but um, we're going to do a little bit of a version of that. You could be an older son if, and we're going to look at a handful of reactions that the older son has to help diagnose this. And here's the thing, is this is what I want you to How's how I want you to process this. This is about a mirror being held up to our lives. This is what Jesus is doing to the Pharisees, by the way. He's holding up a mirror to their lives saying, this is God's word. Look deeply into it and see if you can see what God wants to remove from your hearts. Because look, one way out of this is we could say, well, I just, I'll look at my heart and it's all about where my heart's at and those kinds of things. But here's the thing. That, that works in some cases, but in most cases, look, we are even deceived about the condition of our own hearts in many cases. Our own judgment about our own hearts is not necessarily very reliable. What we need is God's word as a mirror to shine the truth into our hearts. And this is exactly what's happening here. So as we take a closer look at this, this is what Jesus is communicating to the Pharisees in his invitation. First of all, the older son thinks that his father owes him something. Look, based on his own obedience, the older son even says it. Based on my own obedience, this is what you owe me. He feels like he's entitled to make demands of his father. And so the older brother attitude often manifests itself in our lives in a behavior that expects there to be a life full of prosperity, answered prayers, the good life. Things are supposed to go well for me if I'm obedient to God. 
And if they don't, not only do I mourn those things, but I get angry and bitter with God. Or on the other end, I despair because I think to myself, if I could just be more righteous and more faithful to God, then God would give me better things in life. That's the older son perspective of being entitled by being good. And the son ends up furious with his father when he doesn't get what he, what he wants. When he doesn't get the fattened calf, and he doesn't get to say who gets the fattened calf, he's furious. Secondly, the older son believes that he is his own savior. Again, the older son says this in his own words, right? Look what I've done. Just by what I've done, you should be throwing a party for me. The older son attitude essentially says, yeah, Jesus is my savior, but the reality is, is like I was kind of almost there anyway, and Jesus just gave me the bump that I needed. Because I'm not perfect, but I'm pretty stinking good. And I'm all, and I, you know, and I just needed that extra bump from Jesus' salvation, and it kind of got me over the hump. I'm not like all the rest of these people who really need God's grace. And that's where the Pharisees were coming from. They believed in essentially that they were their own saviors. Third, the older son doesn't really want to be with his father. Now, if I were to ask you what the point of Christianity is, what's the point of Jesus coming to earth, how would you respond to that? There's probably a lot of, a lot of, a lot of answers that we could give to that. But one of, the, one of the first answers better be this. Jesus came to us to be Emmanuel, God with us, to bring us back to God so that we can be reconciled with God for eternity. That is the point of it all. And if that's not the point of our Christianity, then our Christianity has no point. And in each of these cases, these sons wanted, these were, they were estranged from their father because they didn't want their father and fellowship with their father and, and their father's home themselves. They wanted the things that their father could give them. They wanted the inheritance. They wanted the things the world gives rather than their father. And you can see this in kind of this heartbroken expression that the father has towards the older brother. He says, son, you are always with me. And everything that I have is yours. What more could you want than that? And why is it that you want something different than being with me? You have me. Shouldn't that be enough? Both were lost in the end because they didn't want the father. They wanted the things instead that the father gave. Next, the older son becomes the judge of what is good and who is good. You see this as the, as the older son reacts to what's happening. That's not good. You can't be throwing him a party. And not only that, but he himself doesn't deserve what you're giving him. And he doesn't even call him his younger brother, right? The entire time it's like the servant calls, it's your younger brother. The father's saying, hey, your younger brother's back. He can't even bring himself to call him his own brother. He says, your son, that one who went to be with the prostitutes, he does not deserve what you're giving him. In the same way, the Pharisees were sitting in judgment in the scene that they were in as well judging Jesus and judging those dirty tax collectors and sinners who are with them. The older son mentality brings us, produces in us a place where we feel superior over others. Again, there is a reality to where self-righteousness puffs us up with pride and God's grace humbles us. When we suffer from the older son syndrome, we're willing to forgive certain things but not all things. Sin that is kind of the way that I sin, but not sin in a way that I couldn't sin or couldn't imagine myself sinning. This sin's okay with God. That sin is not. And then finally, the older son has a dry spiritual life. 
When it comes down to it, older sons don't have much joy in their lives in general. And this is especially true for their spiritual lives. Praying, worshiping, reading our Bibles don't give them very much joy. And it makes sense when you think about how all of this kind of comes together. Because praying at its heart, worshiping at its heart, reading our Bibles at its heart and its purpose is all about us enjoying being with our Father. It's all about communion. What brings us joy out of those things is we get to spend time with God in prayer, in worship, in reading his word. And for those who don't really want to be with their father, these things just become joyless religious duties. Things that they do that make them feel a little bit better about their self-righteousness, but it has the opposite effect of what it's supposed to have. Instead of awe and wonder at God's grace and presence and provision, it puffs us up in pride saying, I've read my Bible every day this week. I go to worship service every Sunday. Look at all the things that I do in the church. And look, at the beginning of this message, I asked you if people should get second chances or third or fourth or fifth chances. And what I was getting at is that most of us have a line that we draw somewhere and say this is as far as this can go. Whether it's a third or a fourth chance or whatever it may be. The beautiful thing about what God shows us repeatedly throughout his word is that God doesn't have that line. That line doesn't exist anywhere. It's not a second chance, a third chance, a seventh chance, a seven times 70th chance that he draws the line. His grace and forgiveness goes out everywhere to everyone. And in all that goes out in this parable, I want to leave you with one more thing, which I think is the most important thing to see. It's God's initiating love for us. It's a love that goes out to us, a love that continually seeks us out. We see it in the Father's response. Again, he runs out, initiates the the forgiveness with his son. He goes out to his older son, who is outside of the party, and initiates love with him, that conversation with him. We see it in that, but we also see it in a thing that's not present in this parable. There's one son that is not mentioned, and he's actually the most important son. Remember the two parables before this one, the lost sheep and the lost coin. What both of those parables have in common is that something was lost and somebody went out to get each one of those things and bring it back. And so as the people who are in that setting are listening to those parables and you get to this third parable that we're all told together uh, in sequential order, the expectation is that when the younger son goes out that somebody's going to go out after him. And yet nobody does. Certainly a lost son is more valuable than a lost lamb or a lost coin. And yet nobody goes out after the lost son. It should have been the older son who did it in reality, but the condition of his heart didn't allow him to do it. As Tim Keller puts it, this is what the true elder brother would have done. He would have said, Father, my younger brother has been a fool, and now his life is in ruins. But I will go look for him and bring him home. And if the inheritance is gone, as I expect it will be, I'll bring him back into the family at my own expense. By not including the true older son in this parable, Jesus leaves a yearning for the true older son. And what it does is point to himself as the one who goes out. He is the true older son that we need, whether we're the younger son or the older son. He is the one who goes out to bring us back. Not just to go to a different country, not just to go to a different land, but to come from heaven to earth to redeem us and to pay the cost to bring us back. And he puts a robe on our shoulders He puts a ring on our finger. He puts shoes on our feet and welcomes us back into our Father's house. And in the end, the point of this parable is that it doesn't matter if you're a younger son or an older son. 
All of us need the one true Son who is Jesus. And as he calls out to you, and as he continues to search for you and call you out with his initiating love, the question is, are we going to respond to his invitation to be in the party or not? It's the same way Jesus left it with the Pharisees, the open-ended parable, the same question goes out to those of us who read it today. The initiating love, the invitation has been given. Will we respond to his love? Let's pray. Father, we are thankful for your love for us. And I know I've discovered this in my own life. I'm sure I'm not alone in this, in this room, but just when we think we understand your love and grace, we realize there's a whole nother level to it. There's a whole nother aspect of the depth of your love and your grace and mercy for us. It is, in, it is unsearchable. It is inexhaust, inexhaustible. And Father, we ask that as we pay attention to what you have shown us today, this mirror that you have held up to our hearts, uh, that you would show us where we have to trust more in your love. The reality is, Lord, you go out first and initiate searching for us with your love for us, and you call us to respond. You call us to come into the house, to come into the party. And it doesn't matter how far we've gone. It doesn't matter what we've done. It doesn't matter where we've been. It doesn't matter who we've done it with. Your grace, your love calls us home. And so, Lord, wherever we might be this morning, whether we're the younger brother who has wandered far away, not sure whether or not we can ever make our way back to God, or we're the older brother who's now painfully aware of our self-righteousness and the pride that, that, that resides so deeply in each one of our hearts. Lord, we pray that we would respond to the gentle calling of your Spirit, whispering to us, saying, come back home. Let me take that from you and replace it with the kingdom. Let me take that with you and replace it with my peace, with my grace, with my mercy. Lord, we ask that you would do that in us, not because of any other reason than that it is the life-giving thing that you offer us. And that because of it, we can draw uh, closer to you and dwell more fully in communion with you. We thank you for your goodness towards us and all these things we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. In just a moment, we'll rejoin our pastor for today's closing thoughts. But first, we wanted to thank you for tuning in. North Bible Church is located in Scottsdale, Arizona, and exists to equip all generations to love God, love one another, and love the world. For more information about North, please visit our website at northbiblechurch.com. Now, some closing thoughts from our pastor. Thanks again for being here this morning. We have uh, an important announcement that I want to make you aware of. Um, you know, when we originally started this one service thing for the summer, we had planned that it was only going to be a summer thing. Um, but we, uh, in recent conversations, we've realized in just the way that 
God has brought things together as a church and the experiences that I think many of you have felt and many of you expressed to us on Sunday mornings and being part of one service together. There's been more energy in these services. There's been the opportunity for us to gather together as one church versus having two separate services where maybe we don't see each other as much as we would like to. Uh, we've decided for the time being, and what I mean by the time being is that originally we were supposed to go back to two services at the beginning of August for our kickoff Sunday. We've decided at least through the fall uh, to continue one service on Sunday mornings. Okay, so this is a... Uh, yeah, it's exciting. I'm, I'm excited uh, about this. This is going to be good for us, I think. And I, uh, but, but what we're doing on Sunday mornings then is we're going to move this service back to 1030 so that we can be more intentional with the 9 o'clock hour than just kind of having it open. And what we're going to do with the 9 to 10 o'clock hour from 9 to 10 is we're going to have our student ministry meet during that time which is going to allow our students who volunteer during children's ministry to continue to volunteer during children's ministry during the worship service. And then it's also going to allow our student leaders to be a part of worship services because that was one of the things we were, that was kind of, you know, a, a little bit of a hurdle, a little bit of a, a, a difficult thing that we were dealing with uh, this summer. And so we're going to be from 9 to 10. This will start actually August 14th, so the Sunday after our kickoff Sunday. We're going to go 9 to 10, which is going to be our student ministry hour, but we're also going to build in some discipleship options, adult discipleship options, into the 9 o'clock hour as well. So we're going to develop classes, we're going to develop discipleship meetings, discipleship training, that kind of stuff that's going to happen from 9 to 10. Now, we've got some things on the works with that. We're not ready to fully announce it yet, but we're going to start that, and that's the design for Sunday mornings now. So from 9 to 10, discipleship hour and student ministry, and then starting at 1030, we will have our worship service, and we'll have one worship service together on Sundays, okay? So um, again, we're trying this just like we did throughout the summer. We, we, were, we had a plan, but then God kind of changed our plans. We've got a plan for the fall, but we're open to God changing those plans as, as well. And one of the ways that it might change, for example, is if we get too big for this room and we have to go to two services, that would be a great problem to have. But for now, this is what we've got set up for the fall. So just be aware of that. Again, August 14th is the first time we'll go to that uh, new schedule. Exciting thing that's happening this week, I don't know if you've heard, but our students, our middle school and high school students are going to camp. They're going to leave at 5 a.m. in the morning. So be in prayer for them tonight to get a good night's sleep. And uh, be in prayer for them all week. Uh, if you have ever been a part of student camp, if you've ever had kids that have gone to student camp, you know that it is a special, unique time where God does a lot of amazing things in the hearts of our students. And so be praying that God will do those amazing things in the hearts of our students. Uh, be praying for our student leaders. Be praying for Brent as he leads our students out there. Be praying for their journey, all of those things throughout this week. They leave tomorrow morning, early in the morning, and they'll be out there all week at Camp Pondo. So be praying for them. As we're praying together, we want to uh, invite you to, to um, submit your prayer requests. We have prayer cards that are located in the back over there. You can write your prayer requests down on those prayer cards. Drop them in the offering stands, those black offering stands as you leave. We'll make sure that they get to the right place, and we consider it a, prayer, uh, a privilege to, to join with you in prayer over those prayer requests that you put in each week. And we also have the Comstocks, who are our prayer partners at the end of the service here. If you're looking for prayer or somebody to talk with or pray with, they're there for you to be able to pray with you in that way. Okay? Hope you have a great week. Stay cool. Stay out of the heat. Do whatever you need to do there. And we look forward to seeing you next week. Thanks. Thank you for joining us for this week's message. North Bible Church is located in Scottsdale, Arizona and exists to equip all generations to love God, love one another, and love the world. For more information about North, 
please visit our website at northbiblechurch.com.